Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Jenna. I'm Ashley. And today we're discussing Season 2, Chapter 2, Trick or Treat Freak. Happy Halloween! This is a special throwback episode uh, to Stranger Things 2 for a recap of the Halloween chapter. This was the first episode that I ever recorded alone, so I am so delighted to be able to return to this episode, to return to season two, but have company this time. So I'm joined by Jenna, and then also I'm joined by Ashley from the Ham Radio podcast. I have had the significant privilege to be able to guest co-host over on her podcast, but this is Ashley's first time on Coffee and Contemplation. So hey, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Always love uh, coffee and contemplation. I'm not the biggest fan of coffee in general, but I love the podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank Uh, you very much. So before we get into the actual episode breakdown, I am curious to know, season two is a very divisive season. Like, how did you approach it? And then what was your your takeaway from it? So I remember watching season two for the first time and thinking, this is not as good as season one. It was still enjoyable. I still liked it, but you know, season one just had something that none of the subsequent seasons have had, but now it's funny looking back, having watched seasons three and four, I kind of lump seasons one and two together. There's a certain atmosphere, at least that both of them have. And of course we know they radically changed the overall tone for season three and got some of it back in season four, but you know, the first two uh, seasons still really go together for me, even if I still think season one was like the great season and, and season two is more just like, yeah, it was good. It was fun. I liked it. Season two was actually the first season of Stranger Things that I ever watched because I never watched it uh, when it first came out in 2016 because I saw it like on the promos on Netflix, but I was like, mm. This doesn't really seem like my cup of tea. And when I was in college, it was around Halloween and my roommates wanted to find something to watch. And one of them was like, hey, let's watch season two of Stranger Things because, you know, it's all about Halloween. And and they're like, Ashley, you know, I think you'll really like it. Like, okay. Uh, We watched all nine episodes of season two, like in one night. And it was awesome. And it scared me initially. It really did because the mind player and all that. But yeah, I, I love season two. I watch it every Halloween season because it really is it's meant for spooky season yeah yeah i i i like season two i uh i like all the seasons but there's some parts about season two where i can see why it's so controversial but overall i have no problems with, with season two that's such a fascinating perspective i like coming into this season without season one but it, i think it's really awesome that you liked it as much as you did, because I think that says a lot about how well this season does work on its own. That's really cool. So I, yeah, I'll definitely be interested in your perspective on that as we go through this episode. I'm very much on record about how much I love season two. And I love the idea of making Stranger Things 2 like part of one's annual fall viewing. That's a great idea. I don't know why I didn't think of that. That's fantastic. So was Halloween like your favorite thing growing up? Yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) There's just something about like we went trick-or-treating in the 90s. 
20, 30 years on, it, it just feels a little different to me. Like everybody does trick or treating in the daytime now. It's so weird. They're all out before dark. That's just so weird to me. The best part was being out when it was dark and you're in costume and it's silly and it's goofy, but slightly scary. And we had neighbors that would really get into it and, and dress up too. And they do goofy stuff for us kids, you know, not just give us candy. So yeah, I, I I don't see it so much of that just in neighborhoods these days anymore. You have to like go to the farms and go to events and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's that's something I love about this episode in particular. I loved trick-or-treating as a kid. One of my favorite things that we did all year. And I love seeing that here. What was it like, generally speaking, coming back to this episode post-season four? I look at it through completely different lens. Whenever there would be like, especially with Will, okay, when he was now like getting visions. I kept writing, knowing what we know now in season four. And because now it's like the whole big thing with season two was the mind flare. Okay, what is it? What does it want to do? It's just this shadow thing. He likes it cold. He wants to kill everyone. We don't really know what much about it. Well, now you fast forward to season four and Henry Creel, aka Vecna, aka first text subject, he either is the mind flare or he's controlling the mind flare. We don't really uh, know 100% which is which there, but it's, it's just completely different because now it's like, you know, this psychotic man, Henry Creel, is doing all this to this child. Now we, you know, go forward, going forward through season two, does he want to just use this child to look into the world? I mean, what is this is why Will was kidnapped in season one for this purpose. So, yeah, it's it's completely different. I've never watched it the same ever again. So I do see the connective tissue now. It is interesting. Is some so much of season two still feels very self-contained to me. I like that. But I think also that's probably just because it was so self-contained for so long. It did occur to me at one point that maybe that's also why a lot of that that's another one of those contributing factors that makes it a little less appealing for some for some fans because it doesn't have as much of that like everything's connected feel. It does feel a little bit more independent. A lot of that is visual, a lot of that is tonal, but also a lot of it is plot, which a lot of it is in the back half of the season, but like yeah, I can see how things are connected, but so much of it still feels independent from from where we are in the current landscape. But with all of that said, let's get into our contemplation. So the episode starts with Eleven. Here's how she made it out. When she was in the Upside Down in the very beginning and she's like trying to get out, I think I said in my previous recap, for some reason her like wandering the halls and then even breaking out through the gate, it kind of gave me a slight video game vibe. You know, I was actually thinking that when I was watching it today. Like I'm trying to like get good at recognizing when there's green screen stuff, not logically, but visually. I was like, yeah, I think this shot definitely feels like green screen, but it also feels like a video game because of the way the camera is like right here, (laughs) right here behind your head. That's, That's probably why you get those vibes from that. Okay. I wrote down 11 wakes up in the upside down. Looks like a simulation CGI slash SFX effects question mark because like those vines look like they were painted onto the walls. Um, they weren't moving and all that, but just just watching her 
run through the hallways of the school in the upside down. It did not look natural. And I again, I don't know if that was special effects issue or if that was uh, intentional. But uh, I did, I did pick up on that this time around. Yeah, that's probably exactly what what happened. It's just gotten so much better since then. I mean, that was 2017. So yeah, probably. I'm glad I asked because I feel <laughs> I feel vindicated. The little detail when she finally gets out of the gate, like I loved the production design detail of the blood on the floor. It was just, and it's not like it's a lot. It's not like the floors are like covered in it, but like there's those like trails where they were dragged. And I was like, I like that that detail is there because it didn't have to. Probably if those if that blood hadn't have been there, probably nobody would have noticed or very few people would have noticed or cared. But I was like, yeah. I see that detail. It's good. Eleven goes to the Wheeler house and she watched, She kind of sees everybody being interrogated. There's This is another great one-shot sequence where you go in through the window and you see everything happening in the Wheeler house. And I like the presence of the feds here. The danger feels just airtight. It makes me feel like, yeah, this is why Elle can't reach out to Mike. That's why Hopper is so worried about it. Like, there's a lot of grounds for that. We're hearing about how dangerous that would be for everybody. Yeah. When Karen is talking to one of the agents and she says, uh, do the Russians know about this? And and the agent says, no, they don't know about her. So I thought that was really, really interesting. It implies that the federal government is aware that the Russians either know of Eleven or of Brenner's program. And uh, that pothole has never been really filled. No. But it was just, it was just something uh, I, I noticed. What I thought was interesting, too, this time was noticing that Mike is being interrogated without either of his parents. I mean, they're there in the house, but these two agents are talking to him and neither of his parents are, are, are part of that. And then, yeah, that moment between with Mike almost seeing her is very sad. Yeah, it kind of made me tear up because, I mean, you can actually see her a little bit through the window and, you know, her like tearing up and stuff and very... uh tender moment and it's a very effective use of bookending the episode too because we get this moment between them at the beginning and then we get the almost eye contact almost connection between them at the end as well way to kind of showcase that she was there a year ago ish and then she's still in even though her circumstances have changed a lot she's still unable to reach him and then she has to go and hide in the woods and it's to come back to this place where she's still having to just like scrape and scramble to survive poor child and yet i think that's one of the the parallels to vecna is despite all that and you know he grew up with a a loving family it's like despite all that what she went through she still has kindness for others and still you know has love and he has none of that i think they're just always building this as you know her side is you know, good and love and his is like evil and, and hatred and Eleven, her, her whole backstory and stuff is just, it's so sad to me, but Mm -hmm. she does, you know, she makes the best of it. And I really, that's one of the things I really appreciate uh, about Eleven as a character. Absolutely. 
But after that really sad introduction, we get our title sequence. And then that leads us back to the present with Hopper and Elle. What I noticed this time is how all the windows are shut. Like all the drapes are drawn. Elle can't even fully see outside. I mean, later we have the scene where she sees the squirrel through the window, you know, and we also get get it in the montage why you have to keep everything closed. But I really liked just even just as a background detail that you can you can see how cut off she is, which is a weird juxtaposition with being alone in the wilderness. Now she's completely caged in and cut off from anything in the outside world. End of season two, when uh, they finally get the mind flare out of Will, is in the cabin. And so it's like, it's her prison, but yet it's where Will is freed from Mm -hmm. uh, this shadow monster possessing him. That contrast, that's a really good observation. I like that. I actually just really love the scene where she's just wearing the sheet and standing behind Hopper and he's just like, what, what are you doing? (laughs) I love that you can like see and feel her wanting to go trick or treating, even as she's underneath that sheet. I don't know. There's something kind of precious about that. This reminds me a lot of the situation in season one, where the boys wanted to go find Will and join the hunt. Hopper's like, no, you need to stay home. And how Heidi suggested that it might have actually been a good idea to let them join, allowing them a little bit of leeway and letting them feel like they were doing something was probably safer than letting these kids go off by themselves. I think kind of similarly here, like it might have helped. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision for him to tell her no to stay home, but it might have done a lot of good to let her go because she's not wrong. They can't see her. In hindsight, I understand her not understanding, you know, why can't I go trick-or-treating? No one's going to see me. And you know Hopper's going in his mind, yes, but they'll see me. And then they'll ask me, hey, chief, why do you have this child with you? Like, who is this child? You know, and then you have to explain, and then it would draw attention to them. But at the same time, this is important characterization for Hopper. Yes. Yeah. He's clearly not sure how to be a single dad all of a sudden to this 11, 12-year-old kid. You could argue that he's being fair or unfair, but he's not just going off the rails about stuff. And this is what I expected to see more of in season three. And uh, it's so it's kind of fun going back to this after watching season three and being like, man, what the hell happened? And also, I really appreciate the way when she's like, but they wouldn't see me. They wouldn't see me. And he says, I don't care. I don't care. You can hear that note in his voice of like, I'm scared. Like there's it's not like. It, it's not dismissive. I mean, I can see how Elle might see it or hear it that way. Yeah. But but I definitely, for, for, for me as a viewer, I'm like, no, I hear that he's scared. I hear the fear in yeah. his voice. It's a little bit of desperation. We mm-hmm. don't take risks. And you can totally, again, argue that he's being fair or not, but he is being consistent. Mm-hmm. And that's important to what we understand about his character. And that's the whole point of having these characters be a certain way is the way that their heads will butt, you know, it works just fine like this in season two. Yeah. Like the, I, I really actually love his characterization in this season as the, you know, tough love overprotective father. I think it works really well. Mm-hmm. We then go to the buyer's residence where we get our callback to the first season with Will not being in his room. Then we see the drawing of the mind flare. This is our first look at it in this episode. 
I do love that little uh, montage of all of their moms taking pictures of them and Jonathan taking pictures. I think that's fantastic. I do have to say, Mrs. Sinclair absolutely wins the the most points for the best photo of the of the child in the costume because Lucas is outside in front of the tree with the ghosts hanging, and I was like, brilliant, it's the best. Perfect. Which Amazing. I mean, you'd have, you'd think it'd be Jonathan with the best picture, but no, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Miss Sinclair has the best artistic eye, apparently. Apparently. It's so fun to put like common threads between all of them and the way that they're growing up. Uh, even if Joyce doesn't make as much money as the other three families, uh, we Dustin's dad is absent. I don't think we've ever seen him. We don't even know where he is or if he exists or whatever. But yet they still have this great thing that ties them together. They have supportive families that love each other. And that's that's important. Mm-hmm. And this is this is costume cosplay goals. Not so much the quality of the costumes, but just the group effort of it. Like when you can get a group of people together for group cosplay, it's the best. I mean, it's not surprising at all that these that these four boys would be like super into Halloween, especially like that detail of Dustin having the working ghost trap. Like, of yeah. course he would. <laughs> of course he would have that. Yes, absolutely. I like that montage. It's all like you get Ghostbusters on in the background and, you know, they're Mm -hmm. so excited to wear those uh, costumes. Of course, then when they get to school and no one else is dressed up and here are the nerds. Yeah. I don't remember Halloween suddenly not being a thing for me in my schools, especially Mm -hmm. middle school. Like maybe by the time you get to high school, it started to the interest started to fade. But like it seemed like. Halloween was a thing. Whether Halloween fell on a weekend or a weekday, like they always let us dress up on Halloween from like elementary to high school. It didn't, you know, if you wanted to, you could just, you know, obviously you had to make sure it was like appropriate, but yeah. On and off, it seemed like uh, it was cool to dress up for Halloween. It didn't really matter. If your friends were doing it, it was cool, basically. <laughs> so yeah. some years, you know, oh, and I was a theater kid in high school, so obviously it was cool to dress up in high school every year. So I don't remember it really being like it's such an uncool thing. I didn't think they they were wrong to dress up because, I mean, it was like Halloween was like in a few days. So and you're in middle school. The fact that it's like no one else is dressed up, it just struck me as odd. Still does. Max is not dressed up either. She she skates by that by Dustin and Lucas. And this moment was when I realized how much I appreciate the dynamic between Matarazzo and McLaughlin together. Like specifically the Dustin mm-hmm. and Lucas relationship is a lot stronger, I think, than Mike and Lucas. Not to say that, like, I don't think they're good together, McLaughlin and Finn Wolfhard, but there's something about these two together that I really, really like. You pretty much get success when you put Matarazzo with anybody, but I really, really like this this dynamic. And I was glad that they teamed them up again in season four and then also bring Erica into that. Yeah. So from there, we move over to... Uh, Joyce and Hopper. This scene of them at the table, I mean, she shows him the drawing. She's showing him how it's it's basically outside their house. And then they, they're conferring at the table. 
I actually forgot about this scene entirely. I was Mm -hmm. uh, sitting there and they were talking about, we used to share cigarettes under the bleachers and that teacher cuts one time. I was like, this is really cute. I don't remember it at all. There's so much that happens that this kind of stuff gets buried, but I think it does what it's supposed to do. It gives you that, you know, oh, they, they, they went to high school together. They've known each other for forever, you know, and that's important for us to have that context. This truly is one of my favorite moments in the whole series. And I think it's an underrated scene in a lot of ways. Like this might be my favorite Joyce and Hopper moment. I feel like this is some of their strongest chemistry. There's so much about the way that the scene is constructed, the way it's written and how it builds, starting with them working together, which I think directly leads to them being such a great team in season three. And then Hop talking about his own experiences without leaning on them too hard. So you get this like added like, character exploration of like what he went through through Vietnam but it's all in service of of will and then that then builds to a romantic moment which even retreats you know as her fear comes back into it and just the way it's directed with like him getting up the blocking of him like getting up and moving closer to her and how organic that all feels and how you move into the close-ups and yeah, I was watching that blocking too. The exact thing you picked up on, the way he they're sitting across the table from each other and then he gets up and moves so that they're sitting closer together. It feels and it looks and it's edited to be so natural. He doesn't feel like he's, you know, in her bubble, but they are close and it's an intimate moment that they're sharing. And I was thinking, you know, when sometimes when I watch movies or TV shows, I try to think like, what would this, what would this space feel like in real life or in a theater? How different would it feel? And I think this is one of those scenes where it might feel kind of weird if you were watching two people do this in the kitchen. It might feel really awkward for someone to stand up and sit down like one chair over and like, well, you're are you in my space or whatever? But they just they did it perfectly. A lot of it was quiet, like you. there was barely any background music on. It was just them. And to be honest with you, like the Hopper and Joyce relationship throughout season two is when I think they were at their strongest. Totally um, agree. You know, in season one, Hopper spent most more most of the, that season not believing Joyce and also dealing with his own grief about, you know, his daughter. But yet in this season, after going through everything in season one, like he... He knows about the upside down. He knows about everything that Will went through. And so he's he's there for Joyce because, you know, he's actually experienced it himself. And it's like you said, you know, he, he knows what Will is, you know, dealing with. And a lot of these characters are dealing with trauma from season one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just like how not only Joyce and Hopper, they work so well together, but they understand each other. In my reactions to season four, something that I kept, I've been really wrestling with is this idea of like why the character deaths are beginning to get really heavy. I wrestle with this idea of like, I want everybody to live and like where that comes from and how I I, I think I even said almost in so many words, the series felt like its theme was about getting through and getting through together and getting not just through the actual events that are in front of you, but getting through the trauma of what happens. It's about surviving and it's about being together and overcoming the obstacles, whatever that looks like, however long it takes. And then in this scene, Hopper says, we just got to get through the next couple of weeks. Nothing's going to go back to the way that it was, but it'll get better in time. And I went, that's it. That's where that's coming from. Hopper says it. 
like, I mean, plug that into the end of any of the seasons, even season four, which I still struggle with. Like, this feels like the mission statement. But it was so cool to be like, yes, that's what I've been trying to to articulate. And turns out I articulated out almost verbatim to what Hopper says. Stated right there. Because it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and despite the outcome of season five, I mean, you know, we'll probably always in our minds envision that Hawkins and these characters are never going to live, you know, the way they did before mm-hmm. November 6, 1983. And it's it's never going to to be the same. Mm-hmm. And then we go to Nancy and Steve in the library, where Nancy thinks she sees Barb in a bit of a flashback, an auditory only flashback, which is something we don't see very often, or should I say, hear very often. And it's really effective. I really like the way they do that. There, Nancy and Steve go into the side room to talk, revisiting this chapter for this conversation. I think this is a good time to go ahead and and say how surreal it is to see them as a couple. I say it all the time that Nancy and and Steve are definitely the most developed, the most improved characters throughout the seasons of Stranger Things. And I do think that their experiences with, you know, what happened with Barb and everything with the upside down really helped them to grow and mature, not just as a couple, but individuals. That's why they're two of my favorite characters. See them in season four, like leading the charge with everything in Hawkins. I really like them. And I mean, I like them. I prefer them as just individuals, like, mm-hmm. or just as friends. They're awesome. I, I don't know. I don't think that's a terribly unpopular opinion. I think a lot of people are feeling that way right now. Seeing this moment, I still like the idea of this, you know, something I said in my recap episode before was how this is the beginning of the end for them. While that's now mm-hmm. not entirely the case, it still feels like it's the beginning of the end of this phase of their relationship. It's still, there's a bittersweetness to this scene, knowing how she is really struggling in this moment with her grief. This On this rewatch, it was like, there is the supernatural element of, I want justice for Barb, but I liked hearing this time how much is just straight up grief and loss in what she's saying. Like she's having trouble processing what it means. I like too that in this moment, I feel like Steve's saying they could come after our families. His stance is very, very important. And I like that we had that scene at the very beginning to kind of demonstrate what kind of level of danger we're talking about. And that's also her family in that opening scene. Those are the wheelers. Mm -hmm. That's her family. And noticeably, she's missing in that sequence. I'm not saying, well, Nancy shouldn't take action. It's just, I like that both sides of the argument are valid. Yeah, he's not wrong. No, so, but neither is she. So I I like that they managed to explore both of those perspectives in a way that feel like they're both coming from very understandable places about it. Definitely. Yeah. This is when Dustin and Lucas approach Max. They're both trying to get with Max. When Max says, well, that's presumptive of you. And Dustin's like, yeah, yeah, you know. And Lucas is just looking like, wow, you're such an idiot. You don't even know what she's talking about, you know. Looking at it, too, like from the post-season four perspective, the moment when he shows off the go- the working ghost trap and they're both like, ta-da, 
I love that that scene, that that moment is included in her her montage of memories in the running up the hill <laughs> sequence. Like as soon as I saw that in season four, I was like, oh, that's so uh, sweet. I love precious. it. Because it is such quintessential, you know, Dustin and Lucas. They're they're proud of some nerdy thing that they did that took work and that they created. And they should be proud of it. And then seeing it here, it was like, oh, she, she's not expressing any like happiness in this moment but it sticks with her she remembers this moment and i just thought that was great and it's not and i especially appreciated that dustin doesn't show off the the way it works and then lucas is over there looking like oh i'm embarrassed because dustin's doing (laughs) an embarrassing thing he's like see like he's like in this cool and then the the comedic timing of no all right okay um but anyway totally 11 watches tv and then she sees the squirrel outside and that sends her into another flashback Mm mm-hmm in that flashback, that's when we get probably a hunter. I was curious, what do you make of this guy? Was he genuinely trying to help her? Was he an undercover lab guy or was he just a creep? Honestly, the vibe I got from him was he was concerned about a kid that was out in the middle of the woods in the wintertime, like any normal person would be. That's pretty much all I got out of him. Uh, I kind of thought he was a creep. I mean, my, my estimations has been out in the woods uh, probably about a month or so because her hair is starting to grow and she has not had any contact with any other life forms other than the squirrel and all of a sudden this this man randomly shows up probably a creeper though he also could have been with the lab i don't think um when she hit him with the squirrel it killed him i think it knocked him unconscious and he may have reported that to the police and that's how hopper knew where she would be that's a yeah, great he's point. He's a pretty creepy dude, though. There, I like that theory a lot because my thought was, well, he's a lab guy and that's how he gets to Hopper. But if he had just reported it to the police, that could also be how Hopper found out. I like that idea. That's cool. Something that I said in my last, the last time I recapped this episode was that later on at the party, I wonder if they're playing with like unreliable narrator stuff with Jonathan. But I wonder if maybe based on that, your observation, if this is actually like kind of unreliable narrator through her like if this is how she sees this guy who may have very much just been like hey like trying to help but she sees him as a as a threat or as intimidating or a little bit creepy because she doesn't trust anybody at this point yeah and she may be thinking this is this is an undercover lab person yeah maybe yeah i mean and like i said before i definitely don't blame l for taking the guy's (laughs) clothes as heidi said at one point this is not me making no judgment I was um, listening to a, a Stranger Things podcast the other day called the Hellfire Club podcast, mm-hmm. and they were talking about the massacre scene in, in season four with Henry, his, you know, his hair is all slicked back and stuff, and they were kind of positing, did he really like just slick his hair back like that to, you know, kill all these people, or is that how Eleven perceived him as, you know, evil, or because they were talking about how you know, after he's done killing everyone and stuff, it goes back to what was four and stuff, which I don't know, maybe they hair and makeup side do that to make it look more evil, but you you could see it both ways. Yeah. The striking visual of her hair growing out every season, her hair gets longer and she looks more and more just like a normal girl. 
And then I think that's part of why I absolutely hated that they cut her hair back off yep. in season four. I know they didn't cut Millie Bobby Brown's hair off, uh, yeah. but um, they still cut off the character's hair. And it I just hated seeing that. Yeah. I know that Millie Bobby Brown doesn't have like curly hair, but I love her hair in this season. Mm-hmm. I love it that. It's so like, cute. That curly, like, I mean, I know they're going for a Ripley thing, but it that's what it it's so it's looks so good on her i'm like i love this look i love the season two look that 11 has and by season two look i don't mean the lost sister look i mean the the sort of mop top that she has it's really cool yeah Yeah. in the present though hopper chats with eugene about more poison pumpkins accused vandalism all over hawkins and i'm gonna say it again like in one night that you know this spread took out five farms worth of crops that's that's significant. I, I like the kind of quiet takeover that that implies. After school, Billy drives Max home. And this is this is the first scene with Billy. You know, we see him in chapter one, but we don't actually get any on-screen dialogue with him until here. I'm probably very much alone in this, but this is like top tier Stranger Things to me. I, this sequence between them in the car, it's so, it, to me, this is one of the scarier moments of the episode. Yeah. It's so real. He's straight out of other 80s films, the the bully from all those films. But, he, and, but they do such a good job with him. The way he screams in her face and then threatens to run over those three kids just because he knows it will upset her. Yep. Max's perspective, it's like to be alone in a car with somebody that's that unhinged and that unstable, the powerlessness that it creates, it's very frightening. What a contrast to the beginning of the episode where all the boys are having their pictures taken by their loving, doting mothers. And this is what Max has to go home to. Yeah. And I, I do love Dustin's line of, haul ass, like when the when the car like comes up over the hill, which that was a shot that I was like, how did they do that? Like, because those I are clearly know. the boys, like it must have been a forced perspective thing or something. But I, the reason I love the line is because even though it's kind of a funny line, sort of, it's because the, t- the tension isn't in whether or not they'll get hurt. Like we know that they probably won't. Now, if you hadn't seen the first season, hard to say, but at least from from where I was, my first watch, it's like, it's not about if they'll get hurt. It, it's that Max doesn't know that they will probably be okay. Speaks to how unhinged they made Billy feel in that, just in that one scene. And honestly, we have no reason to believe that he wouldn't have hit them. And nope. I just, I love, I love the way this scene is put together. It works really well. Yeah. And it's also now it's, you know, it's easy to see why Vecna, you know, chose him in season mm-hmm. three because- mm. With that much anger and, and harshness that Billy, you know, possesses, he very he knew what he was doing when when he uh, got Billy. Very true. And of course, first it. of many uh, times, Dacre Montgomery gives an amazing performance. I would have loved to see him either redeem himself or stay a villain through just human regular ways. Yep. <laughs> either way, probably could have worked. So from there, we get. Hopper driving out to Eugene's pumpkin patch. Trying to tell me with a straight face that Cole did this. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> then we get the preparing for Halloween for the trick-or-treating with Bob uh, dresses a vampire showing Jonathan the, the video camera. And I know I noted that in my last recap episode of this where, you know, it shows that Bob is aware of Jonathan's interest in photography and he's introducing him to the video camera. And that's how much I liked that. But it also occurred to me this time that he's in full costume like Will. 
so it's mm-hmm. he's aware of Jonathan's interests, but he's also kind of in line with what what Will is into. And I thought that was that was really cool. So I really like Bob. Mm-hmm. I miss Bob. Yeah, he's such a nice man. And then yeah, Jonathan and Will leave to go trick or shooting, but Jonathan lets Will go alone, and he instead goes to Tina's Halloween bash. This is when we get that fantastic one shot where we drop in we drop in on the party starting from the keg where Billy is gaining popularity and fast and he walks into the house swiftly moves over to the dance floor then goes over for a standoff with Steve that we only see part of because Nancy walks away to the punch bowl over where mm. Mr. Pure Fuel is standing and then Steve follows her <laughs> cautioning her about the punch she snaps at him recites his words back at him and then he kind of like leans on the counter, all one shot. There could be a cut hidden in there somewhere, but I I didn't catch it. Apart from the costumes, like nothing about this this particular party like feels terribly compelling to me. <laughs> People throwing up and it's super dense, like it's super crowded. The music's super loud. I'm like, no. Sounds about right. I didn't go to house parties in the 80s, so yeah. I don't really, yeah. I don't know. Bob enjoys Dance to Islands in the Stream. Classic. Yeah. Always love Kenny and Dolly. You know, Bob, a good guy. He's trying to say, I'm here for you. But Joyce is like, you know, we're not an ordinary family, you know. And she can't say anything about what actually happened in the previous season. Or that they can't leave because Will's situation with the lab, like that was something that jumped out at me this time, too, was that it's like she probably is like, I would love to do that, but I can't, you know, in a way that almost made this viewing a little bit more like difficult like emotionally charged because it's like she would probably love to do that the doorbell rings and then bob does the finally victims and then runs over and then we get the door opening and it's it's our four boys trick or treat it's just a nice it's a nice cut i liked that transition oh little exterminators (laughs) they're just looking like we're ghostbusters lady not exterminators The Three Musketeers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I don't like Three Musketeers. I'm sorry if anyone out there loves Three Musketeers. You know, it's not you, it's me. But I was going to ask, like, because Dustin says it's top three for me. So I was curious if you have like a top three, like Halloween candy. Snickers, Kit Kat, and uh, Twix. Nice. I think my top three is probably Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Baby Ruth, and probably Butterfinger. I know those are all those are all candy bars. But yeah, I think for me, the common element is I like chocolate and peanut butter. So <laughs> Max joins them, which uh, Dustin and Lucas are very happy about. I love the fact that she shows up to trick or treat with them. Yeah. Because watching that other scene before, I was like, there's no way. Like, she totally thinks they're losers. But no, apparently she thought they were kind of, I don't know, cute or fun or something. It is so interesting to see the beginning of their relationships. I really love seeing Max integrate into the group slowly over time and how her role changes and how she fits in and doesn't sometimes. So I love seeing the beginning of that. I love seeing her come into town and realize that maybe these dorks are kind of fun and, you know, she wants to go trick-or-treating with them or whatever. It's so cute. After the scene with Billy in the car, right? I think it's very easy to understand maybe the idea that after that experience, she's like, yeah, they were nice. I want to lean into that. Because I love that when she shows up, she's genuinely quite enthusiastic to be there. Like, she's like, yeah. hey, like, it, it feels very earnest. It feels very guileless. Yes. 
all that all the trick-or-treating stuff it's so good it's so I good it. i love that Ma- uh, mike gets pissed off at her being there i <laughs> yeah. love the group dynamic it's it's so good it's believable and they all play it so well they all play their parts so well yeah i think uh mike deep down likes max he doesn't want to let anyone else in because i think psychologically that that's like i'm replacing her you know by letting max in and so part of the trauma of losing her of losing 11 is also i just want things to go back to normal i just want things the way i understand them i am resisting change Mm -hmm. and i don't i just want me and my friends and i want what i know what's normal and safe and i think max is a threat to that and that's it it didn't it's nothing like specific about her except for the fact that dustin and lucas really seem to like her and will is like it's fine um and this is of course where the random kids jump out at will and he goes into another episode which is where we see the mind flare again and actively chases after will i will say though again that this is another one of those scenes where will feels more like a plot device than a person Mm -hmm. he clearly does have fear about you know the threat of the upside down, but it just plays more like you know, everybody else has other stuff going on. Mike is annoyed that Max is there. The other two are happy that Max is there. And Will's just kind of like, eh, I don't care. I'm a, I'm a person in this scene, I guess. And, you know, hey, this that's where it starts. This is where we start to see Will not have opinions on anything and just be like a cardboard cutout. I still say... The Mind Flayer, whether it's Vecna or not, that Mind Flayer is after him. Will is got has got a target on him. I even started looking at this episode going, is this actually like basically the same thing that we see in season four? And it's not because we don't see Will going through memories, which is what happens to the to the victims of Vecna in season four. In these sequences, he's just in the upside down and the thing is coming for him. And when the thing like rises up, I, I don't know, I just still have a lot of questions about how is this all part of his plan? How much did they retcon truly? You know, Yeah, it, it doesn't. I just I still feel like there is something about Will specifically that the mind flayer wants. But if he was targeted, why? I always just took that to be, you know, he just happened to be taken in season one and that's mm-hmm. just made him a marked person ever since then. He spent too much time in the upside down. It's part of him no matter what now. Part of the horror aspect uh, is that, you know, this could happen to anyone. You don't have to be special. You can just be a random kid riding your bicycle through the woods and it could happen to you. Before I watched season four, I thought, you know, it's like Hopper said in season one, just wrong place, wrong time. Uh, but uh, no, after watching season four, I think maybe Vecna saw a lot of himself in Will. He obviously knew Ooh. what he eventually wanted to do. And I think he needed, uh, you know, obviously someone who was vulnerable that he could take into the upside down, you know, stick the tendril down his neck, implant. Uh, something from the upside down in Will so that after Will came back, he could, you know, have that spot in our world, which eventually did happen. In that regard, Will served his purpose because I don't think that Vecna never intended for Will to become an actual host like we saw with Billy. He said in season two, like, he doesn't want to kill me, but he wants to kill everybody else. 
And Billy actually made more better host uh, for what we saw in season three. I mean, I do think, obviously, he still has that connection, the tingling on the back of his neck, but I think it's because Beckman still lives. So as long as he still lives, you know, Will's still going to have that. I try to keep my expectations as low as possible because, you know, you never really want to set yourself up for disappointment. You know, especially going into the last season, 90% of what I predict doesn't come to pass either. But... <laughs> and Will takes cover. Mike and the others arrive to snap him out of it. It is scary, though. It still really works in terms of, like, I'm scared for Will. That thing is scary. Yeah. If you were really in Will's place, that would absolutely keep you up at night. Holy crap. But it does yeah. remind me about how the writers kind of write themselves into a corner about it. Like, what are you supposed to do about that? They haven't come up with a satisfactory way of dealing with it. They just haven't. I don't know if they're gonna. We'll see. While we're here, I will say that that's one of the reasons that I actually kind of like have like the slightest bit of actual like I kind of do hope that they bring Kali back because the nature of her powers actually create a really interesting foil for Vecna because so much of his power is about making you see shit that you don't want to that is her power too she makes you see things that aren't there that yeah. would be a really interesting mind fight to borrow from Argyle that would that would be so cool I like the idea of her in season two the idea that there's somebody that can actually help Elle develop her powers more it just feels like the training montage so to speak yes. should have been a little bit more fleshed out or whatever but no it's like all Il has to do is visit her and suddenly she's got a power up and can go back and do kick ass or whatever right so that was a little annoying but i still like the overall idea of it mm -hmm. and then jonathan arrives at the halloween bash just after mr pure fuel vomits into the bushes uh jonathan this is when jonathan spots nancy and steve dancing and they look like they're having fun and this feels like an unreliable narrator moment like this is what jonathan is seeing but it's not accurate because almost immediately we then go into the fight between nancy and steve and she spills the punch on herself uh their fight in the bathroom yeah um it uh there's a lot of strong parallels between this fight and the one that mike and 11 have in season four Ooh. um steve goes to just talk to nancy and and figure out you know what's really going on but, you know, Nancy just goes on about, you know, this, you know, you don't love me. You know, this is, it's all bullshit and all that. And, and, you know, it's all fake and stuff. And, you know, after a traumatic, you know, event happened, that's when they have this, you know, fight. And in season four, it's kind of the same with Mike and Eleven after everything happened at the roller rink. And Eleven's like, you don't love me anymore because you don't, you know, say it in your letters and all that. Both Steve and Mike, you know, go to them to talk with them, and they do the right things. I just want, I just want to know what's going on with you, and and I think it shows that sometimes, you know, actions speak louder than words, and and sometimes when you love someone, you're gonna tell them things like, I don't think we should go public with what happened to Barb for our safety. Or, you know, I understand what you're going through. I've been bullied my whole life. I kind of saw those kind of similar situations there between Steve and Nancy and then Mike and Eleven uh, this past season. It is an interesting comparison because of 
like the question of where the guilt sits is interesting compared to the in you know between the two because here Nancy is saying we killed Barb she's carrying all of this shame around their relationship yeah poor Nancy my heart really does go out to her in these uh in these scenes she's truly feeling the loss of Barb and she's feeling the weight of it because she, she says to Steve in the bathroom like we killed Barb she feels like she's being punished for it I know mm-hmm. that uh, you and Heidi talked about that a lot in your discussions as well about how basically that's how they're being punished is with Barb's death. So uh, it's really interesting to hear her drunk self just come right out and say it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Nancy and her feelings about something that Steve just isn't on the same level as pretty much. And she needs somebody who will support her on it. And Steve just wasn't going to do that because that would probably have to mean he would admit some guilt on his part. Yeah. And one of the things that I admire so much about this moment is the way that they break Nancy and Steve up in a way that doesn't come at the expense of Steve's character, which is mm-hmm. so rare. I feel like, if anything, they 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 could have easily doubled down on the behavior that he went that he ex- exhibited in season one, but they don't do that. They don't. If anything, they're creating empathy in Steve's character. A lot of that is the way Carrie plays this moment. Just how crushed he looks. Granted. Him leaving her alone at the party, it's not great. I understand the the desire to, to, to that his reaction is like, whoa, I, I need a minute because damn. But to actually abandon her there, there's there's a lot wrong with that. I stand by that. But yeah. they use this as an opportunity, really more moving forward into the season, to 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 build him up into a better person. And I think that they, even in this moment, though it's a bit of a selfish reaction... It doesn't fundamentally change him for the worse, because ultimately this is also to get her together with Jonathan and to have that not feel like a love triangle. And I think that even in Stranger Things, I feel like we're seeing exactly that play out in season four. It's now a love triangle and they are changing Jonathan's character in ways that don't feel earned. Compare that to what they're doing with Steve right here in season two. I really, really like how they took this opportunity to improve his character rather than punch down, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just so much pain in this scene. It's such a bittersweet moment still. It's not it's not fun to watch. But meanwhile, back in Mike's basement, Will confides uh, in him, you know, what's going on. They say something like, it's just the two of us. It's me and you, buddy. And it's it's funny to think, gosh, I really wonder if they if they wanted Will to be gay and always have a crush on Mike, because you don't really get those vibes. I'm not sure how much they're going to retcon in terms of that or if they're even really going to go for that. When he says, like, yeah, we'll go crazy together, the way that Mike like looks out for him and he's like supportive and he's validating and he's like, I'm here for you. He's just being an amazing person. He's being an amazing friend. Like, I could absolutely see why he would develop feelings for Mike right here. He's being an amazing guy. It's like, it's all the same yep. reasons why Elle fell for him. And it really makes it sting more when Mike says those things that he says in the garage later. It's yes. like such a betrayal because mm-hmm. they've come from this this moment of it's the two of us. The two of us will go crazy together. What a, just, what a knife in the back. They just feel like two completely different people, the Mike in season three and the yeah. Mike that's in this that's in this moment. And I mean, that does happen. Sometimes people yeah. go through dark phases. But what I'm all getting at is that, like, I understand where this uh, this crush could have started. 
the young Mike with the empathy and everything. Yeah, we get a we get to see that here. Jonathan takes Nancy home, puts her to bed. Then Hopper comes back to the to the cabin, but Elle has barricaded herself in her room, goes into the astral plane to to check in on Mike. And yeah, this like heart-wrenching scene between them. Like as we said at the beginning, like how much of a bookend this is with the with the start of the episode. It's like you two pining after one another. It's cr- ah! And the look on her face is just so heartbreaking, you know, like if she had just been a few seconds quicker and then he would have known that she really was there, you know, and so devastated. It's just like, yeah, mm. poor Levin. It's awful in, yeah. the, in, in the best way. <laughs> that, that's it's a really good moment. Yeah. They're not coming at it strictly from a romantic perspective. The longing of, of her wanting to tell him she's alive and wanting to get out and not have to be trapped anymore. A lot of these moments work. Uh, the scene between Hopper and Joyce, it works on multiple levels. It's not just romantic. There's a level of like other stuff there. There's friendship. There's general camaraderie. There's their own stuff that has nothing to do with the other person. So it's also, I always think that's the final scene of the episode too. Like I always expect it to be that it cuts from her her face to credits, but it doesn't. Because we get the button on the end of the episode with Dustin coming home and discovering something in his trash can. He's like, Muse, is that you? And then he opens it up and we don't really see Dart at this moment, but spoiler alert, that's who's in the trash can. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> when he like gets the, the particle thrower down and yeah. just approaches the trash can, I just was like... What's he going to do with that? <laughs> but it's so adorable. I, I love it. Dustin is smart, but sometimes like the panic, especially when they're a little bit younger, the panic setting in probably he wouldn't think it through every step of the way. I mean, my guess is maybe it's a question of like, he thinks, well, this at least is something it's like I can hit something with it. Like it's like a bat, you know, like it's just a base holding weapon. it. He's holding it like a rifle. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. But in that moment, I was like, oh, this might be another reason for why Dustin is one of my favorites. Just he's so adorable. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Although, yes, that, that one shot of the cat earlier this episode immediately the i do remember watching this episode for the first time going i bet that cat doesn't make it out of this season alive i'm gonna call it right now that's one of those things i absolutely hate shake my fist at all of you who keep killing off your cats the i mean i understand what they're doing but the fact that dustin literally says shit a bunch of times right before they cut on the the word i'm like why you're absolutely right with that like that was such a weird like it 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 still works but it is kind of weird like he was just saying shit like a bunch of times why'd you maybe if he was gonna say fuck maybe that would have worked a little bit better you know yeah I mean, it, it was okay, I guess. Yeah, like if he went, what the fuck? And then, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that would work. I mean, and maybe yeah. they figured Dustin wouldn't say that, but I don't see why not. I don't see why not, yeah. And then we close out the episode on the Ghostbusters theme again. So on that note, final thoughts on <laughs> chapter two, Trick or Treat Freak. It's wonderful to come back to. And I really like this episode in particular, too, because I I like the mundane parts of Stranger Things. And there's a lot of that in this episode. There's also stranger parts of this episode, but there's also a lot of that mundane stuff and Halloween that we can relate to. In my opinion, a very underrated episode and an underrated season. Love watching this episode. It's actually got some funnier moments in it, like... 
you know, when Max scares them while they're trick-or-treating and, you know, you know, let's hit up Mott Nora here. That's where all the rich people live. And little moments we get with Eleven and Hopper and, and him and Joyce. And yeah, I just, I love this episode. This episode feels like it had a lot of TLC put into it. I do. I still really love it. I love the vibe. This is the season I watch the most. The autumnal backdrop is still my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I dig it. And I love the Halloween oh. stuff. It's so, it's so good. It's so fun. I love that we get some, some of the classic like Halloween tracks. Like we get Monster Mash. We get Ghostbusters mm-hmm. twice in the episode. We get it both during the, the costume montage and then we get it over the credits. It's just like, yeah, I think they had a lot of fun leaning into the Halloween of it all. And I, oh, I did too. Yeah. So then that is going to conclude our contemplation on cha- on season two, chapter two, Trick or Treat Freak. If you've got comments, questions, thoughts, you can join the conversation by visiting us on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter. Links to all of our social medias in the show notes. And if you've been enjoying, enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review. Coffee and Contemplation is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And you can also check out Ham Radio Podcast. Be sure to do that. Links to that are also in the show notes. Thanks for hopping on to do this random episode. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's always fun. It's always fun to come on and do these. That's good. That's good to know. So thanks so much to everyone for listening, and we will see you next time. Over and out. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. 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 So speaking of, um, and then of course, by the end of the season, the lab is shut down. So then she can leave and she's also kind of not forced, but they're, they're relocated as we now know, or I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. that's, that's the end of season three. Oops. (laughs) I got my chronology mixed up, but in a way that almost made this viewing.